Hey there. A quick message before we get into the show. This episode is about the experiences of Palestinians living in the occupied West Bank, and mostly focuses on events that happened before the latest escalation in violence. It's a perspective that often goes under-discussed, but that's helpful in understanding the Israel-Gaza war happening today. No single episode, particularly one focusing on a specific perspective, can capture all of the complexities of the ongoing conflict. If you're curious to hear other coverage we've done on this topic more broadly, check out our daily news show, Apple News Today. I also suggest last week's episode of this show. We offer a guide to the best pieces of analysis, history, and explainers that we've come across from sources and experts we think are worth listening to. Okay, here's the show. This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shamita Basu. Today, a day in the life of a Palestinian family under occupation. The year was 2012 in the occupied West Bank. A little Palestinian boy named Milad was looking forward to his first ever class field trip. The day of the trip, he woke up early. Put on his school uniform, scarfed down his breakfast, ran out the door. This is author Nathan Thrall. And he went with all the other kindergartners at his school in the town of Anatta, which is partly annexed by Israel, so partly inside municipal Jerusalem, partly not. Milad's father, Abed, was still asleep when the boy left the house. Later that morning, he gets a call from a friend who tells him there's been an accident on the road his son's bus was traveling on. And his heart starts to race. It was windy and raining hard. And he gets in the car with his cousin and they head toward the site of the accident. It takes Abed more than 24 hours before he finds out the fate of his son. Nathan writes about Abed's frustrating, heartbreaking attempt to find out what happened to his son that day in the new book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. I tell the story of the parents and the teachers and the bystanders and the settler paramedics who all, you know, live in close proximity to one another, but they live such different and separate and unequal lives and how their lives all collide in this day of this accident. And I try and tell through the story of this day, the story of all of Israel-Palestine. Nathan is an American Jewish writer who lives in Jerusalem. He spent a decade working at the International Crisis Group. I spoke to him while he was in the U.S. on Tuesday, hours before hundreds of people were killed in an explosion at a hospital in Gaza. Nathan says while the world is watching Gaza right now, it's important to also understand what life has been like in the West Bank for Palestinian communities near the Israeli border. I started by asking Nathan to describe Abed Salama's hometown, the West Bank enclave of Anata. 
The book takes place in one of these areas that's like Gaza. It's entirely walled off. It's walled off on three sides by this 26-foot-high concrete wall. And a fourth side has a different kind of a wall going through it, which is the wall of a segregated road, Route 4370, which is known as the Apartheid Road because it is segregated with Palestinians on one side of it and Israelis on the other. You have 130,000 people living in this dense, urban, walled ghetto. They don't have a single ATM inside. They're partly inside municipal Jerusalem, paying municipal taxes and getting no services. They're getting so few services that they're burning trash in the middle of the street. Their roads are unpaved, in disrepair, no sidewalks, no playgrounds. This is a place of utter neglect. I should say now the enclave that you've described where Abed's family lives is just about maybe two miles from where you live with your family, right? You're very close by in Jerusalem. That's right. What does it look like if you had to compare the way that you, a Jewish resident of Jerusalem, and Abed, a Palestinian resident of this enclave, move around in this area? What are some of the differences? Well, first of all, I can easily go and visit Abed. I just get in my car, I pass through the checkpoint, and I'm inside this walled ghetto, and I can come to Abed's home. Now, even though it's so close, it's just two miles to the wall, it takes a long time because there's huge traffic at the checkpoints, and there's just one road that barely, it's not even wide enough for a car going in one direction and a car going in the opposite direction. Mm. I'm, you know, scraping the edge of my car up against parked cars on the side and rolling down my window and pulling in the side mirror just so a bus can pass me in the opposite direction. Mm. It's just madness that, you know, 130,000 people are dealing with that day in and day out in this walled ghetto. So it's very easy for me to go and see Abed. It's impossible for him to come see me. It's not impossible. It's just a lot of work and takes days of planning. Mm -hmm. So he needs to apply to the Israeli military for a permit. He needs to invent some reason that he has to be in Jerusalem. Every minute of your life is dealing with the jaws of this machine. And it reaches so deeply into the most intimate and personal aspects of your life so that, you know, I tell us the story of Abid's first love. And after that first love, you know, unraveled, he was working with a higher-paying job in Jerusalem, and Israel was putting in place this permit system that made it more and more difficult for Palestinians to access Jerusalem and work there. And he was at risk, along with his co-workers, of losing his job. And he chose a marriage partner specifically in order to be able to get a different colored ID in order to keep his job and continue working. Mm. And he's not unique. This isn't an exception. The system reaching so deeply in that people are choosing who they're going to marry and not marry, is commonplace. The color-coded IDs that Nathan is talking about are an important part of Abed and his son's story, end of life in the West Bank today. See, if you have a blue ID, you are allowed to enter Jerusalem. If you have a green ID, 
you're not. You're restricted to the West Bank. This ID system impacted Milad's bus route the day of their class trip. The students who go to the school have all kinds of different statuses. Some come from families with blue IDs. Others come from families with green IDs. And you have people with different colored IDs in the same families. What that meant for this school and this school trip was that they couldn't go to a nearby play area just on the other side of the wall in a Jewish neighborhood of East Jerusalem, a settlement. And instead, they had to take a long and winding path along this imposing 26-foot-tall concrete wall to get to a distant play area that's still on the other side of the wall. After crossing a checkpoint, they were struck by a giant semi-trailer. And the bus flipped over. It caught on fire. After learning about the crash, Abed rushed to get to the site. But he had to navigate the checkpoints, separation walls, and crowded roads. There's standstill traffic. The soldiers are not allowing cars to go up toward the accident site. Abed gets out of the car. He races toward the site. An army jeep is coming toward him. He flags it down, asks them in Hebrew if they would give him a lift. His son is on the bus. They refuse. He starts running toward the site. And when he gets there, he sees this crowd and he doesn't see the children. And he's asking, where are the kids? And he's hearing all kinds of different rumors because, in fact, the kids had been taken to many different places. So he's told that they're at the uh, military base that's just a minute away, the Israeli military base. He's told that they're at a Ramallah hospital. He's told that they're at one Jerusalem hospital. He's told that they're at another Jerusalem hospital. And why were they so scattered? Why were they so spread out? They were spread out because... The emergency services were extremely late to come. And so it was left to the bystanders to pull the kids off the bus, of this burning bus. There was one man in particular who heroically saved dozens of children. Another, together with a teacher who died in the process of saving these kids, she got off the bus and then re-entered to save these kids. And so all of these bystanders were taking the kids to the closest and best possible nearby hospitals. But the bystanders themselves have different color IDs. So the ones who had a blue ID and could enter Jerusalem and take the kids to the better hospital, they raced off and went in that direction and crossed through the checkpoint with their blue IDs. The ones who had green IDs didn't have even any hope of going through to Jerusalem, so they went in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. And so Abed is hearing all these rumors. He himself has a green ID, so he doesn't have any hope of entering Jerusalem to look for his son. So he goes to Ramallah, and he waits there, trying to find information. You know, the scene is chaos. There are TV crews and parents and shouting and kids on stretchers being wheeled through. And he comes to the secretary at the, the receptionist at the hospital and he says, you know, my son was on the bus. Can you tell me where he is? And she looks on a list and says he wasn't on the bus. And he calls a, a teacher that he knew and he says, what's going on? I was told that my son's not on the bus. And she said, yes, he's on a second bus that wasn't in the accident. 
and that bus is on its way back to your town, to Anatta. He has this terrible feeling in his gut, and he doesn't want to leave the hospital. He calls his brother and tells him to go check on the second bus. His brother calls an hour later, says, everybody came off the second bus. Milad, your son, is not there. Hours go by, and it becomes clear that Milad was not at the hospital in Jerusalem or among the children being treated at the hospital in Ramallah. Eventually, Abed is asked to give a DNA sample. Milad had been burned so badly, a DNA match was the only way to identify him. He was one of six children who died in the bus crash, along with the teacher who died pulling children from the wreckage. Abed has told the story of the worst day of his life many times, especially in the past couple of weeks, as he and Nathan have toured the UK and US promoting the book. And he has tears in his eyes every time he does it. And whenever somebody interviews him and he's crying, they apologize and they say, you know, I'm so sorry to be asking you this and forcing you to to relive this. And every time he answers, don't apologize. I actually like talking about this. I loved all the time to talk about my son. When I remember him and I started to speak about him, about what he was doing, about his laughing, his playing, his drawing, I feel that his spirits are behind me, around me. And this time I feel Milad sitting with us here. So I loved that. And so the whole process of spending all these last years talking to Abed day in and day out, and now also going on this um, book tour with him, you know, has been one of grieving with him. But also it's been a process where he has told me he feels like it's bringing Milad back or bringing Milad closer to him to have these discussions. So he's grateful for them. When you and... And Abed started this book tour that was a couple of weeks ago, and it was before Hamas's attack on Israel, before the escalation that we've seen in the past two weeks now. Yeah. What have your conversations with him been like as you've been together for this time? Um, you know, we've had the same reaction. We've both been horrified by um, the brutality that we've seen. We're both concerned for our loved ones and our, our friends. There's been a huge spike. It was already at a very high level, but a spike in settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. It's unsafe to go on the roads. People are being attacked. His son, you know, has a job in Ramallah, and he, his, his employer told him, don't come. It's not mm-hmm. safe for you to drive on the road. So people are actually suffering economically because... Um, they're not working. It's a terrible moment uh, for everyone. And, and actually, it's so disturbing and frightening for Abed that he just decided that today will be our last day together and he needs to go back and, and be with his family. And I'm going to reconnect with mine right now as well. You know, I've been thinking a lot about what you told The New Yorker two weeks ago, the weekend of Hamas's attack. And you were talking about how when you were working at the International Crisis Group, 
a big part of your job was writing these reactive reports every time there was some kind of escalation in Gaza, because things like bombings and violence garnered a lot of attention. But you said that you explicitly didn't want to write that kind of story for this book. You wanted to write about everyday people feeling trapped under these circumstances. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about why that was the important story for you to tell. Yeah. The feeling that I have had for all the time that I've been working professionally on Israel-Palestine has been that media producers, media consumers, they focus on this place only when there is a Gaza war or something like it, something that is an exception and some exceptional spike uh, in violence. And then when that happens, there is a call for a restoration of calm. But what is that calm? What is the situation that people are calling for to be restored? It's a restoration of the situation just before that violence occurred, which is a system of deep, deep injustice that we're all ignoring and that is continually leading time and again to these horrific outbursts of violence and will continue to lead to more bloodshed. And so that's why it was so important for me to tell a story that would focus on the system because that system is going to be in place no matter how the next week's and months go in Gaza. That system is Israel is in control of the territory from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. In that territory live an equal number of Jews and an equal number of Palestinians. Seven million Palestinians, seven million Jews, and the vast majority of those Palestinians are living without basic civil rights. Now, obviously, that is in an unjust system. It's been going on for decades. And if we continue to only turn our attention to Israel-Palestine when there is some horrific episode of violence, and we turn our attention away when that violence ebbs, we are doomed to keep seeing this bloodshed. And I, for me, the, the aim was to explain a very complicated system through the lives of the people who are navigating it and navigating it on the worst day of their lives. Mm. Because mm. on that day, it came into a sharp relief what it meant to have a green ID or have a blue ID and not be able to search for your child at the hospital you think he's located at. Israel has said that it needs these systems, the walls and checkpoints, different IDs and travel restrictions, because it's under constant threat of violence. But it wasn't always this way. There was a time when Palestinians were relatively free to move around as they pleased. To understand how things changed, Nathan brings us back to the Six-Day War. In 1967, Israel conquered Gaza, East Jerusalem, the West Bank, also Sinai and the Golan Heights. And what that meant was that from 1967 forward, 
Israel was in control, was the sole sovereign in all of historic Palestine. And for those first years of Israel's occupation of the West Bank and East Jerusalem and Gaza, Palestinians could move quite freely. It wasn't total freedom, but they could have breakfast in Ramallah, lunch in Tel Aviv, dinner in Gaza, and come home if they were back by a certain hour. This all changed after the first Intifada, the first Palestinian uprising in the late 1980s. Palestinians rose up in a almost entirely nonviolent uprising that consisted of boycotts and strikes and, you know, throwing rocks at tanks that were invading Palestinian villages. And what that meant for Israel was that the territory became ungovernable. For the first time ever, Israel started to say to itself, actually, we can't just keep Palestinians under occupation without basic civil rights forever. And we need to find some kind of arrangement to fix this broken system. The arrangement they arrived at was the Oslo Accords in the 90s. Both sides agreed to establishing a Palestinian administration, the Palestinian Authority, and giving it limited governing responsibilities in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. The agreement was supposed to last five years, at which point a more permanent status would be negotiated. But that never happened. Palestinians were angry that Israel continued to build settlements in their territory. Israelis said the agreement failed to live up to security promises. Hamas and another militant group, Islamic Jihad, carried out bombings leading Israel to impose even more restrictions on the movement of Palestinians, starting with those in Gaza. What Gaza represents is an extreme model, a precursor of what has started to happen elsewhere in the occupied territories. So Gaza in the 1990s started to be fenced off And there was a permit regime put in place that made it difficult for Gazans to leave. And Israel began to use those permits as leverage to collect intelligence. If you want to get a higher paying job in Israel, you give me information about family members and neighbors, etc. And Israel could control essentially the Palestinian economy by how many work permits it gave. Mm. And what happened after that is that Israel did the same thing in the West Bank. Peace talks completely broke down in 2000, when Palestinians rose up again, this time in the much more violent Second Intifada, and relations have never recovered. Today, Gaza is governed by Hamas. The West Bank is still governed by the Palestinian Authority, which is seen as moderate and legitimate, but also politically weak. Israel maintains a lot of control over the movement of Palestinian people, how they're policed and governed, a status condemned by human rights groups, but one that Israel says is still necessary to protect itself. In recent years, we've seen frequent violent skirmishes between Hamas and Israel, but nothing on the scale of Hamas's surprise attack on October 7th. In an interview with The New Yorker, Nathan called Hamas's attack inexplicable, suicidal for Hamas's rule in Gaza, and said it virtually guarantees an unprecedented scale of death among Palestinian civilians, something we're already very much seeing play out in these first two weeks of the war. I asked Nathan, 
what do Israelis hope will happen next, knowing that there's a range in public opinion? There are voices on the left who are saying that it will not resolve anything to kill thousands of people, thousands more. They've already killed thousands in Gaza, but kill thousands more people. And that this horrible episode is proof that Israel cannot continue to, quote-unquote, manage the conflict indefinitely, that there will be a very high price to pay for all Israeli citizens so long as Israel insists on maintaining a system that leaves millions of Palestinians without basic rights, basic civil rights. Mm. That said... There is a a very widespread desire for revenge among Israelis, and you see that even the center-left president of Israel, who was the head of the Labor Party, he gave a speech where he said there are no such thing as innocent civilians in Gaza. So this is the kind of rhetoric that is setting the stage for not just collective punishment, but uh, mass killing. And when you have a figure like that saying something so reprehensible, a figure who's seen as a left figure in Israel, it's hard to imagine where the breaks are going to come on the Israeli response in Gaza. And I really fear that we are headed toward a darker place than we've ever been. I mean, we're already in a dark place, but a darker place than we've ever been. So that's where the bulk of Israeli society is. And what about among Palestinians? Those who are living in Gaza, those who are living in the West Bank. What would you say are the range of public opinions about what they hope will happen next? Again, on that side, there is just fear right now. Fear of settler violence in the West Bank, fear of the Israeli police and army in East Jerusalem and in the West Bank. In Gaza, of course, the biggest fear is that this call to move 1.1 million people, to transfer them, to force them out of their homes in the north of Gaza and push them into the south, is just the first step. And that they are then going to be asked to move a second time into Sinai or going to be forced into Sinai by a bombing campaign together with an opening of the border into Sinai. And the deep, deep Palestinian fear You know, the greatest Palestinian collective trauma is from 1948, when 750,000 Palestinians fled or were expelled from their homes and not allowed to return. Every Palestinian is worried that this is going to be the moment where Israel attempts to do another mass forced transfer. We've already seen a huge rise in the amount of forced transfer that there's been since the beginning of 2022 in the West Bank. There have been more than 1,100 Palestinians forcibly transferred from their communities. Entirely, Entire communities have been emptied out and uh, pushed out. And now with the move of who knows how many of that, the, that 1.1 million people in the north of Gaza to the south, 
uh, we have, you know, transfer on a scale that we have not seen since 1948. Mm. What do you want people to be thinking about in this moment? Of course, you know, I want people to be thinking about preventing the worst. So what I, it's absolutely warranted that everybody is now focused on Gaza and trying to ensure at the, you know, most basic level that we get a ceasefire and that we stop the collective punishment of 2.3 million people by cutting off food and and fuel and electricity and, and water to them. But thinking about after this war is over, you know, what I want people to think about is to think about what is this deeply unjust system that is in place now and will remain in place when the Gaza war is over. If we want to see a stop to this bloodshed, we need to revisit that. And we need to radically change our attitude toward this place and start to move toward a clear moral call for civil and equal rights for Palestinians. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Nathan Thrall is the author of the new book, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, Anatomy of a Jerusalem Tragedy. You can find it on Apple Books. If you're listening in the Apple News app, we've teed up an excerpt from Nathan's book to play for you next. Keep listening. Keep listening.